Uh, as, as Eric mentioned, uh, we are beginning a series uh, on evangelism. So as a church, we, wow, it, it, it's hard to believe when I say this, a year and a half ago, uh, we planted with this mission, this vision, First City Church exists to glorify God by making disciples, planting churches, and cultivating spiritual renewal through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's a key component to that, an absolutely essential component to that, sharing the gospel. If we, if we don't share the gospel, if we're not going out and proclaiming the gospel to those who do not know Christ, then we're not making disciples. And, and if we don't make disciples, then we can't plant churches. And if we're not making disciples and planting churches, then we're not going to see spiritual renewal happen in our city, in our region, and even our world. And so sharing the gospel, evangelizing, is absolutely essential to who we are as a church, our identity as disciples of Christ. And, and here's, here's the other thing, too. I mean, if we're not sharing the gospel, what are we doing? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't mean that like in a, in a guilt-inducing way, but, but to be honest, why are we here? Uh, and really, why be part of a church plant uh, if, if sharing the gospel is not at the heart of, of your identity in Christ? And so we, we want to talk about this, not to just say, hey, we need to go out and evangelize more. And, and if we don't feel guilty and just kind of, I want to beat you over the head with this because I need to grow in this just as much as any of you. Like I'm preaching to myself this morning and, and throughout this series. So, so I'm not standing up here as one who has nailed it. But I think we need to ask some questions. Like, what, what are we about? Why are we a part of this church? What, what is making our hearts beat as far as our involvement in the church and our identity as disciples if evangelism is not a part of that? And so we're, we're spending time uh, thinking through and, and meditating on over the next nine weeks what it means for us to be on mission and to evangelize. And, and, and let me throw out this caveat because I don't, I don't want to like swing into this imbalance. yes. The church absolutely exists to mature disciples. We're a worshiping community. But you cannot use the category of mature in your discipleship if you're not also thinking through and talking about and doing evangelism. Like mature disciples share their faith. They want others to know about Jesus. And a robust worshiping community if we, if we say we are a worshiping community committed to, to glorifying God in our worship, well, how can we say that if our heart isn't, doesn't beat for more people to know the glory of God and, to, and for the glory of God to expand in our city and our region so that more worshipers are made? And so a robust worship culture means we're going to share the gospel. And so any way you slice it, this is an important topic for us, and that's why we want to spend some time growing in this over the next nine weeks and as a catalyst really to continue to grow uh, throughout our years as a church. And here, here's another one of my concerns. This is underneath maybe some of the wrestle that I have is, as I was thinking through and praying through, okay, Lord, where, where do we need to go in our sermon series throughout the year? And I kind of had this underlying angst is that, hey, in many ways, First City Church, we're doing all right. I mean, we're, we're, we're growing. We're financially stable. Uh, most of our systems and processes are in place, mostly. Um, I mean, we're, we're largely in a really, really good place. For, for most church plants a year and a half in, I mean, we're some, in some ways a light years ahead. And that's God's grace and God's kindness to us. But here's what can happen. Oh, everything's good. We're comfortable. Money's in the bank. People are in the, showing up on Sundays. 
people in my gospel community, man, things are good. Let off the gas. Take a step back. All of a sudden, we start turning insular, start focusing inward, and we become a church that's more about just sort of maintenance and maintaining rather than being on the front lines of mission and engaging what God has called us to do. We planted this church that others in Bellevue and Papillion and the Omaha area would come to know Christ and more disciples were made frontline mission work. And so church, these are the reasons, this is the motivation for why I want us to reflect upon what it means to share the gospel in this city, in this region, what it means for us as a church to be committed to proclaiming the gospel. See, I want our faith for evangelism to grow. I want God to build our hope in evangelism, and I want God to deepen our obedience in evangelism. I want myself, I want this church to be marked by a fervor to go into our city and region and share the gospel and serve others and make disciples. So that's where we're beginning this series this morning. And also, for those of you in this room that that don't profess faith in Christ, you're here because someone invited you or you were compelled to go to church for some reason, you really weren't, weren't sure why, well, I can tell you that's the Holy Spirit, but you're here. I, I also want you to hear our heart for you. I want you to understand that our heart beats for you to know Jesus. We want you to come to understand who Christ is and to turn from your sin and turn from your own kingdom and follow Christ and make him the Lord of your life and give your life to being his disciple. And so in many ways, I want you to hear what it means for a Christian to know and love and care about your salvation and care about your redemption. And where we're going to begin this series and where I think every uh, thought related to evangelism needs to begin is with this topic of prayer. And so here's the big idea for us this morning. Faithful evangelism starts with prayer. Faithful evangelism starts with prayer. And with this main idea, I want to answer two questions for us. Why pray and what to pray for? And so Colossians 4, 2 through 4 is kind of a launching pad for some of these ideas. We're going to, we're going to go to a lot of different places in Scripture this morning, but it's going to kind of ground our thoughts and kind of direct where we're going. So why pray and what to pray for if faithful evangelism starts with prayer? So let's begin with this. Why pray? In Colossians 4, 2, Paul exhorts the church to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. This idea of steadfast is a consistent, robust, uh, all-the-time kind of approach to prayer. You're steadfast. It's not just once in a while or when I'm in crisis or when, when I give thought to it, but it's a continual and regular practice. He's exhorting them, continue in this. And Paul saw prayer as an absolute necessity to mission and evangelism. And this is, this is an interesting aspect of of the New Testament. If you look through the New Testament, especially at the writings of Paul, more than anything else Paul asked for related to supporting him in his mission, he asked for prayer. More than money, more than resources, more than people coming and joining him, he asked churches and people to pray for him because he knew that without prayer, he had no power. Without prayer, He was just some dude trying to come up with the right idea or the right arguments, and he was just kind of out there on his own without any power. He knew he needed God. He needed God's power. He needed God's spirit, and God works through prayer. 
And this is why Paul was so committed to praying himself and asking for prayer. And in some ways, if we ask this question, why pray, it's very easy for us to sort of overlook. Well, oh, duh, you, you pray because you're supposed to, or you pray because God answers prayer. True. But, but let's go inside that a little bit and, and, and ask this question so we just don't assume and kind of gloss over this. I mean, Scripture commands us and calls us to prayer. In, in God's sovereign plan and purpose and the way that he works in the world, he has ordained prayer as a means that we both engage with him and how he works his plan and purposes in this world. Like he uses prayer. It's not just us kind of talking to some distant God who's just kind of up there, yeah, I'm listening to you, listen to you, but I'm going to do what I'm going to do no matter what. And so you're just kind of talking at the air. Yes, God is sovereign, God is in control, but he has ordained that our prayers are a part of his plan and purposes. And so he listens and responds and engages us in prayer. And prayer also has this powerful shaping component as well. It orients our hearts and our minds and our priorities. And so if we want to see the Lord's power in this city and region, and if we want the Lord's power to work in our hearts and shape us, then we need to be people of prayer There's incredible promise there for us. Don't miss this. There is promise in the prayer that God has called us to. And so I want to, when we talk about why pray, I want to give us three considerations for how prayer orients us and changes us and shapes us, especially as we think about being people committed to evangelism. So the first is prayer orients us towards dependence. Paul understood that he was utterly dependent upon the power of God in sharing the gospel and making disciples. This is why Paul prayed and called the church in Colossae to pray as well. And the other churches that he wrote to were utterly dependent, church. We need the power of God. And so we pray, seeking God and shaping our hearts in that dependence. Like we recognize, I can't do this on my own, God. I need you. And so I go to the Lord in prayer. And as I go to the Lord in prayer, my heart is shaped more and more in that dependence. This is what Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5-7. through 7. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as a Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. There it is, Paul laying it out there. My dependence, my power, everything I put my hope in is the Lord. Like the effectiveness in my ministry, you want to know my strategy for ministry? The Lord. (laughs) Prayer, depending upon God and his power. And so church, let me ask you, do you want to be a church that sees many come to know Christ? Do, Do you want to see disciples made in this city? Then where are you going for that power? Where are you going for that ability? Is prayer part of that equation? Are you depending upon the power of God? Because if we want to see disciples made, if we want to see many come to know Christ, then we need the power of God. We can't artificially make anything happen. It's not going to be our clever strategies or our clever speech or our cool marketing or our cool graphics or even our excellent worship team as awesome as they are. It's the power of God. And so we need to be committed to cultivating hearts of dependence and asking God to work, and asking God to move, and that happens when we cry out to God for his power and for his wisdom, when we cry out to God to save in prayer. You know, oftentimes our fear in evangelism stems from poorly placed dependence. 
Like we depend upon our own knowledge, our own ability to converse. Is this not true? You think about getting into a situation and sharing the gospel, and what are all the excuses? Well, I don't know enough. Or I'm not really good in conversation. I'm not really quick-witted in the midst, and, and I don't necessarily know what to say when someone asks this or says this or acts this way. And so it, it reveals where our dependence is. And so oftentimes our fear comes from poorly placed dependence. And even the best of us, even those of us who have PhDs in theology or are great conversationalists, look, your knowledge and your ability is limited. But you can be the smartest dude in theology on the planet, but without the power of God, nada. You can be the most engaging conversationalist and really know how to come back and respond well and be super charming without the power of God, nada. And so we need the Lord's power, even those of us who are gifted. And so what prayer does is it reorients us to where our true dependence lies, where true power is found. And so we can put it this way. Prayer keeps us properly dependent. It moves us away from depending upon those things that have no power or limited in power and moves us to where true power lies, keeps us properly dependent. And so in many ways, we, we never stop being dependent. Yes, grow in knowledge. Grow in your knowledge of the scriptures. Read apologetic texts. Grow in your ability to converse and share the gospel. But never move away from where your power truly lies. And that starts with prayer. Prayer keeps you properly rooted in dependence. Prayer also grounds us in our dependence by keeping us from gimmicky programs and tricks in evangelism. Sadly, sadly, too often evangelistic programs are bait and switch. I mean, my whole youth group experience growing up was an exercise in bait and switch. Hey, let's play some video games, get hopped up on Mountain Dew, and we'll tell you about Jesus at the end. Look, that, okay, I, I'm, not, I'm not disparaging people's sincerity, but I am asking a question. Where is your dependence? Where, where, is, where do you trust the power is coming from? And, and, and there are other ways we can manipulate people as well. I, man, I had a, just a lot of examples of how not to do it growing up, but I remember sitting in, I think it was a Sunday school class, listening to this evangelist come in, and this is what he did. He took out a lighter, boom, flipped the lighter on, put his hand over it, and held it there as long as he could. And he goes, this burns, this hurts. Do you want this to cover your entire body? Do you want this to cover other people's, over all their bodies too? Then you need to believe in Jesus and go tell other people about Jesus. Classic manipulation, fear-mongering. Again, very sincere dude. But I wonder, where is your dependence? Where are you expecting your power to come from? Is it in my ability to manipulate and move your emotions and be clever? Or is it coming from the power and the spirit of the Lord? And, and can I be honest with you, church? As, as the one leading this church plant, uh, sometimes I, I get things in the mail or I get things in my email about programs and ev- evangelistic type methods that are incredibly tempting. Grow your church, do this, and bring all these people in. And, and you're sitting there and you're going, man, I really do want my church to grow. I really would like my church to grow. I really would like people to hear the gospel. And, and, and not all of these things are bad, but, but the point is, is like in that moment, it's like, what, what am I putting my hope in? Do I believe that the power of the gospel is sufficient, that preaching the gospel and loving people well and living on mission and, and sort of all the things that we've committed to as a church, do I believe those things are sufficient, depending on the Lord and his power? 
man, it's, it is very tempting sometimes. But what prayer helps us do, it keeps us grounded in proper dependence on the Lord. When we're tempted to try gimmicks and tricks, going to prayer is what keeps us focused. So prayer orients us toward dependence, but prayer also orients us towards the kingdom. And let's be honest, with all of the demands and responsibilities of life, it is very easy for us to get caught up in our own kingdoms. How often is it easy, for, how, how often are we more oriented towards the American dream than the Great Commission? And so prayer orients us away from our kingdoms and towards the kingdom of God. It's as Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, how would be your name? Your kingdom come, your will be done. What's happening there? In prayer, our hearts are being shaped for the kingdom. Our priorities are being shaped for the kingdom. And so the question becomes for us, are our lives merely just the jobs and the chores and school and running kids to this activity and that activity and going on vacation and rinsing and repeating, things that are going to pass away? Or are our lives and the purpose that we chase after day to day oriented towards something greater, something lasting? Now hear me, and I've said this plenty of times, Ordinary life is ground zero for mission. And so I'm not telling you to stop with the daily activities of chores and jobs and activities and, and whatever else makes up your normal day. That's part of life on this planet, and that's just, that's, that's just how we exist. But is there something deeper going on in that? Is there something more meaningful in the things that you engage in? Is there something more in how you're raising your kids and spending your time in activity? When you engage your job, is it just to punch the clock and get a paycheck? When you think about prioritizing your time, is it just about con consumption and what, what is entertaining for me or what I just need to get done? Or is there something bigger going on? And so ordinary life is a good and honorable thing. Ordinary life is necessary. Ordinary life is where mission and evangelism take place. But is your ordinary life oriented towards those things? Is it oriented towards the kingdom? And this happens in prayer. This is, this is where we begin to see and experience life more deeply and more richly, where we begin to see that my daily activities and my job and the things that make up just an average day are shot through with kingdom implications kingdom purpose, kingdom meaning. But we're not going to have that focus, we're not going to have that perspective unless we're spending time in prayer, praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, having our hearts shaped around those things. And so church, I want us to live ordinary life. I want us to engage fully in the things that make up just average existence. But let it be transformed. Let, let the way that we engage and live as families, the way we go to work, the way we go to the park, the way we play sports, the way we go to the grocery store, let all of those things be transformed by the kingdom of God. And that starts with prayer. Prayer is what orients us to see all of life as kingdom living. And then thirdly, prayer orients us towards compassion. Our hearts moved and broken over those who are far from Christ. Do we care or are we indifferent? Do we have compassion? Do our hearts break for those we know that are far from Jesus? In Matthew 9, 35, 
we, we see Jesus showing compassion. We see his heart broken for those who are lost and wandering. This is what we read. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus sees people broken by sin, trapped in sin, afflicted by pain and sickness, which is the result of sin. He sees people overtaking and being led by false teaching and oppressive rulers, and he has compassion on them. And the word compassion in the Greek is, is the verb form of sort of internal organs. So, so the, the idea here is Jesus felt this in his gut. The deepest part of his being, he felt compassion for these people. And out of that move, out of that, that, that feeling of compassion, he tells his disciples, pray for these people. Pray that the Lord would send people to go and to share the gospel with him. Pray that the Lord would send leaders that would gather them and bring them into true faith and a true community. And so I, I don't know from the text, we don't know if the disciples necessarily felt the same compassion that Jesus did. We, we really don't know. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But I guarantee you this. As they prayed this, oh, their compassion came. You, you, you can't be locked in a prayer like that. You can't be vigorously engaging the Lord that he would send people to share the gospel with others and not have your heart begin to be shaped around compassion. And so for us to, to cultivate compassion starts with prayer. It changes how we think about people. It changes how we feel about people. And I love that the, the word here that pray earnestly here, the idea here is beg, implore, urgently plead, shamelessly plead with the Lord. Like ask in that way that is just extravagant and consistent and over and over and over again. It's this earnest, vigorous, Lord, save them. Lord, help them because I deeply care and love them. And the Apostle Paul mixed exhortations to prayer with this sense of compassion that he had for different people. So in 1 er, Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, this is, what the, this is what Paul writes to the church. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Here's, here's what I want to highlight in this passage. In this context, Paul is asking the church, telling the church, pray for leaders and others that probably oppose you. Like people that have different political views than you. People that are going to tick you off because they have different policies on health care or economics or the minimum wage or whatever. They have different views of religious freedom than you. And he's saying, pray for them that they may come to know Christ. That takes a level of compassion. And so in praying for these people, compassion is cultivated. And so if you lack compassion, well, it's found in prayer. And then in Romans 10.1, here's Paul saying, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to, to God for them is that they may be saved. The them here is the Jews. Paul is eagerly desiring that the Jews, get this, the Jews who ostracized and mocked and beat him and tried to kill him and kicked him out of the synagogue and hated him, his desire is that they would come to know God, come to know Christ. 
Where does that kind of compassion come from? Prayer. He's praying for them diligently, regularly. And out of that, compassion comes. And so our hearts should break over the lost. And that compassion, that, that shaping, that love, that care, that, that moving away from indifference, that happens in prayer. And so prayer ignites our hearts with compassion and it keeps, peeing, keeps us from seeing people simply as enemies. Look, we're going to have to oppose evil. We're going to have to oppose false teaching. We're going to have to even perhaps oppose other people. But what keeps us from seeing them as just this abstract object of evil that we oppose and not people that need Jesus is prayer. Builds compassion. And so we are oriented, our hearts are oriented towards compassion around prayer. So that's why we pray. What to pray for? Well, back to Colossians here. Pray for opportunities. Paul asks for prayer that he may have opportunities to share the gospel. This is what he writes in Colossians 4, 3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door, may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. May God open a door to share the gospel. What would it look like if every morning you woke up and said, Lord, just open a door. Give me an opportunity. I wonder if some of, for some of you, that's kind of like praying for patience. It's like, be careful what you pray for. <laughs> because it's like, you'd be in that moment, and you'd be like, oh man, the Lord answered my prayer. What do I do now? But what would it look like? How would that change your, the way you interact with people on a daily basis if you spent 30 seconds in the morning saying, Lord, open a door for me. Open, give me an opportunity to share the gospel. Because here's, here's what I think will happen. One, the Lord's going to answer that prayer. And so he's going to open doors, but it's also going to put you more in tune with those opportunities. It's going to make you more aware of when the Lord is opening those doors and, and, and there he's kind of setting this opportunity in front of you to share the gospel. I mean, how many times have you had those moments where you walked away from a situation and you thought, oh man, I had an opportunity there, didn't I? I, I was, as I was reflecting on this sermon, I was thinking back on, a, on several times where this has happened to me. And I was, remember this one time having a conversation when I was at the University of South Dakota with, with a classmate of mine. And, and it wasn't because of fear and I was holding back, but I just, I walked away from that conversation and I was like, oh man, there was opportunity to, to go somewhere with that and to share the gospel there. And I, and I missed. It's because I wasn't really aware. I wasn't calibrated and, and sort of expecting those opportunities. And so praying for opportunities, the Lord opens doors, but again, orients us and keeps us aware of those opportunities. And here's what this also does. Paul is writing Colossians from prison. He's in prison when he writes this, and he's saying, church, pray for me, open doors for me while I'm in prison. Not the most, if you think about Paul, like he wants to, you know, go take the gospel out, travel the world, go to city to city. Here he is locked in prison, very inconvenient for him. And yet he sees it as an opportunity. He sees this inconvenience. He sees this, this oppression. He sees this situation that's less than ideal as an opportunity to share the gospel. And how many times do we miss inconveniences as opportunities to share the gospel? Think of it this way. Something happens to you and you're in an inconvenient situation. What do you, what do you typically think the Lord's doing? Oh, he's teaching me patience. Oh, he's teaching me how to endure suffering or endure a situation where I know he knows that my emotions are gonna be tempted here. What if it also is possibly an opportunity to share the gospel in some way? 
What if that inconvenience, what if that opportunity that you think is less than ideal is actually God opening the door for you to share the gospel? And so the point here is this. Pray for opportunities, and those opportunities may come as inconveniences. But we're going to miss them unless we are praying and calibrated for that. And another way to think of this is praying for opportunities connects us to God's all-surpassing power. What it, what it does is it shows us and empowers us to see that evangelism is not limited by circumstances. When I pray for opportunities, I see that me sharing the gospel is not limited to the ideal softball circumstance and conversation, but in any circumstance, in any conversation, in, in any inconvenience, the power of the gospel can go forward. Here's how evangelist John Dixon writes about this. He says, in prayer, we lift the work of the gospel above mere circumstances and into the hands of the one who governs everything. An open door for the message, even though the chief messenger is locked up in chains, only prayer could ensure such a beautiful, beautifully illogical reality. Paul was confident that through the intercessions of other believers, God's word would never be contained by mere circumstances. Because of the power of prayer, circumstances need not stop us, need not hold us back. They can be the very avenue for sharing the gospel. So we pray for opportunities, and we also pray for words. In Colossians 4.4, Paul asks for prayer for his words, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. He wants to clearly present the gospel, and he needs words to do that. And he's asking, hey, pray that my words are clear and my presentation of the gospel is clear. So have you ever been in a situation where you didn't really know what to say, and what you did say, you kind of sounded like an idiot? So I remember the first time I spoke to my wife, Mindy. Um, I'll spare you the, the, the details, but essentially we were at the same school. I was a teacher and she was helping with the aftercare program and, and I was getting a lot of encouragement to go up and talk to this girl. And so I perfectly timed that we just happened to walk out of the building at the same time. And so as we're walking out, um, I'm, I'm like mustering up the courage and, and I kind of turn to her and I go, um, yeah, those kids were really rowdy today, weren't they? And she looks at me and she goes, yep, and keeps on walking. <laughs> I'm like, smooth. Smooth, Chris. Just blew your chance. Didn't really have the words. Really wasn't clear. Really wasn't, really wasn't suave in that moment. And, and, and how many times does that happen with us with the, when, when we're trying to present the gospel? We kind of have these moments of like, oh, man, why did I say that? Oh, I don't know what to say in response to this. And, and not to say that you're going to magically just like overcome those things, but when we're praying for the words, when we're praying for clarity, then it's the Holy Spirit empowering us and giving us wisdom and giving us insight on in how to share the gospel. And so look, it doesn't mean that you're all of a sudden going to become a PhD in theology and become a great orator like Martin Luther King Jr. You're still going to be you. And so it still may be a little awkward. It still may be a little shaky, but the Lord is going to be at work to clarify. The Lord is going to give you the words that this person needs to hear. He's going to empower you and your words. And so we pray for the words to speak. We pray, again, that we be dependent upon the Lord. Paul, the great evangelist, consistently asks for this. In Ephesians 6, 18 through 20, this is what he writes to that church. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Prayer, prayer. 
And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And so this is what praying for words also does. Pray for boldness. And boldness doesn't mean I come on like a crazy aggressive street preacher. It just means I say what I should say in the moment, that I don't hold back sharing the gospel, even the hard parts. That when the moment arises, I step in and I speak. And so let's pray for words. Let's pray for boldness. And let's also pray for people. Paul understood that God is the sovereign Lord over the hearts of man and that he must open their hearts and their eyes to receive the gospel. This is what he writes in 1 Corinthians 4, 6. This is what he, for for those of us who believe in Christ, God has supernaturally transformed us. And this is how Paul describes it. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you are in Jesus Christ, that's what God did for you. He's shown his light into your heart and gave you the knowledge that you may believe who God is. And that's what we need him to do. And so we pray, God, open the hearts of those who do not know you because only you can do that. God is the author of our salvation. And so for anyone to come to know Christ, he has to work in their hearts. Here's, a, here's another way to look at this. Uh, so Ephesians 3, 14 through 19 is a prayer that Paul prays for the church, but he's praying for those who are already in Christ. He's praying that they would have a greater understanding of the love of Christ, and he wants the Spirit to strengthen them, and he wants Christ to dwell more fully in their hearts. Here, here's, what, here's what he prays. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his Spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What an incredible prayer. What an incredible prayer to pray for someone who doesn't know Jesus. Oh, that they'd be strengthened to know God, that Christ would dwell more fully in their heart, that the Spirit would reveal to them the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God in the gospel. Paul, Paul recognizes that only God can do this in a person's heart. And so we recognize, Lord, we need you to act. If anybody is going to be saved, you have to act. And so we come before the Lord asking him to do only what he can do. And so we pray for people. We pray that they may know Jesus. And we also pray for each other. I mean, the, the, the whole overarching context of Colossians 4, 2 through 4 is Paul saying, hey, pray for me, the apostle, the evangelist, the one who is doing work to share the gospel. So we pray for each other. Pray for those in your gospel community. Pray for your pastors. Pray for the work of missionaries. Pray for those who are taking the gospel to those who don't believe. You know you have friends in this church. You have people in your gospel community. They're faithfully working to share the gospel with their friends and neighbors. Pray for them. Pray for their opportunities. Pray for their words. Pray for those that they are sharing the gospel with. We are committed to praying for people along with words and opportunities. Church, God calls us to be shamelessly persistent. Eagerly pray to the Lord of the harvest. And then in another 
parable, Jesus talks about pounding on the door, pounding on the door of like your friend and saying, wake up, wake up, give me what I need. Like, do you know God invites that kind of prayer? Be a nag, be shamelessly persistent, be obnoxious. He's saying, do that for me, to me. I invite that. Because what does that show? It shows faith. It shows a relentless faith. It shows the kind of faith that believes God is as great and as glorious and as big as he says he is. And so God invites that. Because here's the truth. If you're locked in, consistent sharing the gospel with others, if you're wrestling for the souls of those who don't know Jesus, it's, it's hard. It's messy. It's discouraging, is it not? Is it not sometimes you feel like there's no way this person is ever going to come to know Jesus and so sometimes you give up hope? And so what prayer does is it orients us and reminds us and grounds us in the promise. God has said, I will save. I am faithful. I am good. And so in the midst of that mess and that challenge and that hardship, we anchor ourselves where our hope and our promises are. It strengthens us and sustains us for the work. And it builds our trust and our hope and our faith in the one who's promised to save, the one who has sent Christ into the world to accomplish salvation. And here's the beauty of this. If you're in Jesus Christ in this room this morning, it's because someone prayed for you. Someone prayed for you that God would open your eyes and your heart to know the glory of Christ and the gospel And God answered that prayer. Man, I think of my mom, I think of my grandma, I think of my preschool teacher consistently prayed for me that I might know Christ. And that's the story of you in this room. And so it would just be awesome. Hey, who prayed for you? Who faithfully and relentlessly prayed for you that you may know God? So may we be a church that is committed to that kind of prayer so that those that we want to see sitting in this room, worshiping Jesus, coming to the Lord's table and receiving Christ, God, that they'll be here. And God would answer that prayer. And so church, let's commit ourselves to this work. Amen?